0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Custom dictates that I begin each episode with a reminder that Wittenberg to Westphalia is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, an organization of independent educational podcasts dedicated to bringing intelligent content to you, our audience. Audience, we have a favor to ask. We need some cash money to implement some changes we are undertaking, and so we need to run an ad campaign. To do that, we want to be able to tell our advertising clients a bit about who you are. In addition, we're going to be overhauling the way we do a number of things around here, for example, membership admissions, and so we want to know some things about how you listen to our shows. If you listen to multiple Agora podcasts, then bringing in smaller shows with new and exciting topics might help build the community. On the other hand, if you only listen to one or two Agora shows, maybe we need to focus on recruiting shows that have already established a solid fan base. For all these reasons, and more, it would really help us out if you followed the link in our show notes and filled out a short survey. If you have already filled out an Agora survey recently, no need to do it again, but if you haven't, your feedback would be appreciated. And as a data nerd, I have to say that getting a nice big sample size would put my heart all aflutter when we get to doing the analysis, so please do. Also, if you haven't yet, go check out Agoraphobia on the Agora Podcast Network feed. To be clear, the Agora Podcast Network feed is free, it is a podcast feed all its own, and there's a lot of fun stuff. Agoraphobia is our October thing. I've been doing one every year for a couple years now. It's fun. Go listen to it. Do it. Since this is the pot and I'm doing special stuff this month, I just wanted to give a shout out to the people who had gotten in touch telling me that they have reached out and thanked an archivist. There have been a couple, but just a particular shout out to Tim, who I think was the first. And all of you out there, uh, again, I encourage you, reach out to an archivist and talk to them about their work. They'll be happy to hear from you. Speaking of thanking people, this month we have a variety of donors and patrons who are worthy of our honor and praise. First up, we have Jake, who has requested to be known henceforward as Morley Dresden, Lord of Cigarettes Lit with Burning Cities. Next up, we have Patron Nick, who shall be known henceforward as Sir Nick, the Jester of Jarl Bill. Then we have Patrick, who shall be known henceforward as Grand Archduke Patrick, Zoning Officer Number 3. Following on from Patrick, we have Duncan, who shall be known henceforward as Fieldhoutman Duncan of the Aluminum Sword. And finally, we have Prince Brandon, who had a mishap with a straw that one time and everyone laughed. Prince Brandon, who had a mishap with a straw that one time and everyone laughed, has it upped his donation, and as is customary and fitting, he shall be gaining additional honors and titles. As such, he shall be known henceforward, as Prince Brandon, who had a mishap with a straw that one time and everyone laughed, so he went and changed his name to Hugh the Troubadour until he was tragically killed by a guy in a dog costume. Great thanks to Brandon and all of our other donors and patrons for their great service to our podcast and our community. If you wish to join their surried ranks, head to the website to Westphalia Com, and go to the donations page or the support page, I believe, is what I called it when I designed the website myself. There is also a store page where you can purchase T-shirts and other T-shirts. And you can also get in touch in the comments section for the episodes. And also head over to the Facebook page and the Twitter feed, which has been very active recently, and uh, say hi. You can email me as well. And of course, as with all podcasts, we benefit greatly from you giving us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. And I think that's it. So thanks very much, and uh, enjoy the episode. Federal Water Pollution Control Act of 1967, Title 33, Navigation and Navigable Waters, Chapter 26, Water Pollution Prevention and Control, Subchapter 1, Research and Related Programs. Section 101, Congressional Declaration of Goals and Policy. A. Restoration and Maintenance of Chemical, Physical, and Biological Integrity of Nations' Waters. National Goals for Achievement Objective. The objective of this chapter is to restore and maintain the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's waters. In order to achieve this objective, it is hereby declared that, consistent with the provisions of this chapter, 1. It is the national goal that the discharge of pollutants into navigable waters be eliminated by 1985. Two. It is the national goal that, wherever attainable, an interim goal of water quality which provides for the protection and propagation of fish, shellfish, and wildlife, and provides for recreation in and on the water, be achieved by July 1, 1983. Three. It is the national policy that the discharge of toxic pollutants, in toxic amounts, be prohibited. Four. It is the national policy that federal financial assistance be provided to construct publicly owned waste treatment works. Five. It is the national policy that area-wide waste treatment management planning processes be developed and implemented to assure adequate control of sources of pollutants in each state. Six. It is the national policy that a major research and demonstration effort be made to develop technology necessary to eliminate the discharge of pollutants into navigable waters, waters of the contiguous zone, and the oceans. And, seven, it is the national policy that programs for the control of non-point sources of pollution be developed and implemented in an expeditious manner so as to enable the goals of this chapter to be met through the control of both point and non-point sources of pollution. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is Wittenberg to Westphalia, episode 58, Podiversary 5, Modern Plumbing. So, over the last year, I got a ton of great questions from listeners. They were so good, you guys. Really thought provoking conversation starters. I was excited to get to this potiversary. And then I didn't write them down, or at least not in an obvious way that I could recover. So I have spent the last month alternatively beating myself up and then desperately trying to scroll through conversations to find these mythical questions that I can no longer remember. So I'm out of time. And anyway, this has all become contrary to the spirit of the potiversary. These things are supposed to give me time to catch up on research and get me a mental break, not like uh, exercise and self-flagellation. So let's do this. If you asked me a question over the past year, give me a poke and maybe I'll do a Minnesota or something. In the meantime, I'm going to be doing a topic that I find enjoyable and I think many of you found enjoyable when I did it uh, in the Middle Ages a couple episodes ago. But I'm going to be talking about the modern version, which is to say I'm going to be talking about the care, maintenance and functionality of modern sewage systems, as the title implied. So let's just get right to it, with one of the threads I left dangling in the episode on urban living conditions, namely septic systems. Modern septic systems are the direct descendant of cesspits, but they are much less of a hazard to human health. A big part of why is that we do not keep them in our basements covered with flimsy wooden lids. Instead, our plumbing systems take waste from inside our homes to a septic tank, which is outside the home itself, usually buried in a field. Septic fields can often be identified by plastic PVC pipes that stick out of the ground and aid with air circulation down into the septic system, which speeds the decomposition of waste. As in cesspits, septic tanks are constructed to allow the water in the waste to drain away and allow the solid waste to break down. Unlike in olden times, this is not done with dry stone walls. Instead, septic tanks have a branching network of pipes off the main tank, which are in their turn perforated with tiny holes that allow the liquid to drain away while between the pipe, the tiny holes, and then the soil outside, the solid waste is kept in the tank. This design is more efficient than the old cesspits, and today, we also do a number of other things to boost efficiency. For example, we encourage the decomposition process by adding microbes to the tank that specialize in breaking down organic waste. These advances allow far more material than one would think to be contained in these septic tanks. At the end of the day, however, septic systems are still the descendants of cesspits. They do accumulate solid materials that need to be pumped away every few years. If you have a septic system on your property, please do read the manual and get it regularly serviced. A septic system failure is unpleasant for everyone even remotely involved. More importantly for wider society, septic systems do also have an impact on the environment. The liquid waste is drained away and will eventually make it into the water table, and this can create major problems, no matter how much soil is in between. There's a reason cities in the developed world use sewer systems and not septic systems. The solution to this pollution is, as usual, dilution. That is to say, some septic systems... That is to say, some septic intrusion into the water table is fine. The same bacterial processes at work in the solid waste will eventually render the liquid waste harmless. We're going to get to why a little bit later. The trick is just to not overwhelm these natural processes with a huge amount of waste liquid. As a result, local land use controls in the developed world have incorporated standards to avoid these problems. In the USA, zoning and subdivision ordinances incorporate guidance from the EPA that limit the number of homes in a given area that can be on septic systems. This prevents the accumulation of too much pollution for the natural systems to handle. If a town tries to allow too many septic systems in an area, the town can get in trouble with the state and federal authorities. If a developer wants to put too many homes into an area, they can be forced to pay for the extension of sewer systems into the new area by the town. In Europe, where planning is much more powerful, development outside of areas with sewer systems are often just completely prohibited. A process that helps control urban sprawl and focus the development of new housing into areas with the services to support it. This goes beyond sewage and septic to, you know, pre-existing power lines and phone services and public transportation. This, of course, brings us back to the topic of central sewer systems. Modern sewer systems date back to the late 1800s and went through some really interesting permutations, which we don't really have time for today. Arguably the first truly modern system was built under Napoleon III in Paris, which makes modern sewer systems and modern urban planning very closely linked concepts, which is why I know so much about this. That said, for my purposes, modern sewer systems really began with the 1967 Clean Air and Clean Water Acts. Before that time, water treatment standards were set by local authorities and were mostly based on a simple desire not to have outbreaks of cholera in one's own city. If this meant the next city downriver had to deal with your city's sewage, well, that sounds like their problem, doesn't it? As you can imagine, this led to no end of problems. The Clean Water Act basically flipped the script. Anyone dumping wastewater into a water body had to return that water to a standard that would not cause environmental problems. There are a lot of technical permutations on this, but what it means for most modern treatment plants is that the water leaving the sewage treatment facility has to essentially be safe to drink. I should hastily add that sewage treatment authorities, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Center for Disease Control, and the entire governmental system of the United States respectfully requests that you do not drink the water leaving sewage treatment plants. That would just be asking for trouble. Who knows what diseases or pollutants are slipping through that we have not learned to test for. That said, you technically could drink it according to modern water quality standards if you really wanted to drink the water coming out of a sewage treatment plant, you freak. This level of quality imposes a lot of requirements on water systems, not all of which are fully met, but we are getting better all the time. Ah, but I'm actually also getting ahead of myself. Like Inigo, let's go back to the beginning for a few minutes. When you flush your toilet, run your dishwasher, or use water in basically any way, the resulting wastewater goes down the drain. From there, it uh, all comes together and most of the solid waste gets sort of dissolved into it and it forms kind of a sludge. And obviously it goes into a series of sewer pipes that eventually take it to the treatment plant. That is probably where most people's understanding of wastewater treatment ends. But let's dwell for a bit on how the wastewater gets to the plant. I mentioned in the episode on living conditions how there were ditches in the middle of medieval streets where waste collected and was washed down to the river, and how all the town gutters contributed to this process by being aimed into the street such that their water was concentrated and flushed out the gutter. Well, modern sewage systems are the direct descendants of this setup in much the same way that septic systems are the descendants of cesspits. To start at the most basic level, modern sewer systems usually run under the street and are almost always gravity-powered. That is to say, it's very rare to have a pumping facility that forces the sewage up over hills using uh, pumps that are powered by electricity or something like that. Instead, the pipes follow topography and drain towards the lowest point in the system. This can be challenging if the area served by a system is not all in a single drainage basin, which is fairly common given that our tendency is to set up sewage systems based on political boundaries, not on natural ones. But all the same, many systems are able to use things like the siphon principle to push wastewater over small and medium-sized obstacles. If you don't know what the siphon principle is, look it up, it's really cool but I don't have time. All of this depends on having a reliably constant liquid pressure in the system to carry solid matter and make use of the siphons and stuff. And so for many years, the wastewater from our homes and businesses was combined with water that fell as rain or snow to create combined sewer systems. This helps even out the water pressure in the system. It's not necessary, but to engineers uh, at around the turn of the century, it was viewed as an advantage. The downside of combined sewer systems is that rain is not necessarily constant, which can mean that during particularly heavy storms, the flow can overwhelm the system. Rain can also wash solid matter into a sewer that is not of the type that the sewer is designed to deal with. For example, sewers are great at dissolving human waste and other food waste. They are not so good at dealing with leaves, sticks, paper cups, plastic bottles, etc., etc. So most sewer systems that started as combined sewer systems incorporate some design elements to deal with these problems. Stormwater basins, which often just look like big ponds, are often incorporated along major roadways to catch and filter rainwater runoff. And smaller basins, which are often just sort of big concrete boxes, they're incorporated at the street level before the rainwater runoff mixes with the sewage water runoff from our houses. These things, these sort of pond-looking things in the concrete boxes, are all there to perform the same function, which is that they trap the leaves, the plastic bottles, the paper cups, etc. They all fall down to the bottom, and then there's sort of a pipe at the top, and the water will go in there. These basins must, as you can imagine, be periodically emptied. A maintenance task that is unfortunately sometimes ignored with disastrous consequences. And even in municipalities where this maintenance is carried out religiously, uh, no system is perfect and stuff gets through. More problematic from a social point of view are the combined sewer system outfalls. Down near the end of a system, it can be very easy for the sewage system as a whole to be overwhelmed by rainwater runoff during rainstorms. And so there are essentially vents built into the system where, when the pressure grows to be too much, pressure can be let out. This sounds good in principle, but what we are basically talking about is that during regular heavy rainstorms, raw sewage will vent out into a water body. Having raw sewage vent into water bodies during regular rainfalls obviously runs afoul of the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts, and so the EPA started cracking down on systems that had such outfall events. Once this conversation got started, people also started saying, hey, why exactly are we paying for the sewage capacity to treat rainwater? Isn't there maybe something better that we could do with rainwater? That seems kind of inefficient. And so in most places, we no longer build new combined sewer systems. And most municipalities and most sewage authorities are actively going through the process of trying to separate the rain runoff systems from the sewer systems, to decombine them, if you will. While that is sort of the goal, sewer systems are extraordinarily complex things, and no system was ever able to do a complete overhaul all at once, no matter how much they wanted to. Many systems don't actually even know where all their pipes and outfalls are located, so this is really an ongoing process, even if, you know, 50 years have passed. Many non-governmental organizations are helping this process along by finding outfalls and alerting the proper authorities, and then encouraging them to eliminate the outfalls. Occasionally, lawyers are involved to help encourage the authorities. Podcast footnote. This all doesn't even begin to deal with the problem of leaky pipes. We don't have time to get into it, but suffice it to say that a few years back, some workers in Philadelphia made headlines when they found a 200-year-old wooden pipe that was still in service. This situation was unique only in the fact that reporters chose to pay attention. Most cities have extremely old pipes in service and do not have the resources to replace them all. This also goes a long way to explaining the ongoing humanitarian disaster in Flint, Michigan, and in many other cities in the Northeast that have gotten less attention. Replacing pipes is not sexy, and so it doesn't get the budget that it deserves. End podcast footnote. So this brings us back to the sewer treatment plant. Once the waste arrives, it is in liquid form, but with a fair amount of solids, both in the form of dissolved solid waste and, like, actual trash. Most of the treatment process involves attempts to separate out these solids. The first step is the most obvious. The water is sent through what is essentially a giant colander to get out all the trash. It is then sent into these giant round swimming pools called settlement tanks. Pro tip, don't swim in them. The wastewater comes into these pools, sort of in the middle, and then it sits very still for a very long time. Until, eventually, the solid, dissolved particulate matter that is free to do so begins to separate out. Undigested fats float up to the top of the tank, while heavier materials settle down to the bottom. Once there, huge arms move around these tanks in slow circles. The one on top skims off the fats, and the one on the bottom scrapes the heavier elements down into a drain. Seagulls are very fond of the top of the tank, which is gross. The fats and heavy elements are eventually drained off to another facility that I will get back to in a moment. At the top of the tank, there is a lip around the outside of the pool, and the water level is kept just high enough that a small amount of the water is constantly draining away, now essentially rid of a huge portion of the solid waste it arrived with. This is called first-stage treatment, or settlement. Before the 1960s, this was often considered sufficient, and this would be vented away. But this is no longer allowed. Instead, I want you to imagine an Olympic-sized swimming pool. They can be bigger or smaller, but just imagine a big pool, rectangular in shape. The pool is split almost the entire way lengthwise by a metal wall. Every few feet off either side of this central wall is another wall that almost fully splits a section off from the rest, but not quite. And then in between these ones that are coming off the center wall, there are other walls that come off the side of the pool and go in towards the middle, but don't quite get there. The result is essentially a really long waterway, with water from the settlement tanks flowing in at one end, and then processes happening, and then they flow out at the other end, via dozens of these chambers... Into these chambers, the staff of the treatment plant toss hundreds of little plastic, they look like tokens. These tokens are all carved up, which gives them a lot of surface area, and that surface area is coated with billions of microbes. As happens in the septic tank, these microbes are decomposition specialists, and to them, this clarified wastewater is like an all-you-can-eat buffet. And as microbes are wont to do, they respond to this plethora of food by reproducing rapidly in the water and eating all the available food. At this juncture, you may ask yourself self, why do they need to do this at the treatment plant? Surely there are microbes in nature that would eat up this microbe food. This is clearly a case of government overreach, where a natural system would do the same job. Well, yes and no. In nature, there are indeed microbes that would feed on this microbe food. But what happens is that they reproduce so fast and so quickly that they use up the available oxygen in the water, and they do so before the food is gone. This kills all the fish, which is bad, but it also leads to red tides, which is worse. Red tides are not all red necessarily, but they are caused by microbes that feed anaerobically. And anaerobic bacteria, for a bunch of complex evolutionary reasons, produce waste products that are outrageously toxic to most other species. And of course, this doesn't even touch on the risk of passing disease on. It's really a bad idea to put even the clarified wastewater out into a natural environment. It'll cause red tides. This wastewater has to be treated to remove these concentrations of microbe food, but how do you do that without causing a red tide in the wastewater treatment plant? Well, if you remember, I said that the thing that killed off that first round of decomposition microbes was a lack of oxygen. So what they do at treatment plants is that these huge swimming pool watercourses are lined with big PVC pipes which are full of holes and through these pipes are pumped massive volumes of air. So in your mind's eye, picture the swimming pool watercourse, except it's absolutely boiling with froth and foam, with bubbles exploding over every inch of its surface. This is ultimately a, a really violent and chaotic process, and the water is so disturbed that it's actually, if you fall in, you die, because you just drop straight to the bottom. It's like falling into a whirlpool. This isn't an academic concern. Sewage treatment plant employees are injured and killed all the time. It can be a fairly dangerous job. This process, with the bacteria and the boiling pool, is level 2 treatment. For microbes, this pool is absolutely paradise. There is no upper limit to the amount of dissolved oxygen in these conditions, so the microbe populations just go bananas. By the time the water leaves the pool, it's almost entirely devoid of dissolved nutrients, with the exception of the microbes themselves. Lacking food, they begin to go dormant and start to form into clumps. Which means that it's time for another trip through the settlement tank. Just as before, the water goes into a big pool with the two rotating arms, except this pool is much less popular with the seagulls being more or less devoid of solids. The microbes settle down to the bottom of the pool, where they are collected by those rotating arms and pushed into a drain, and then they are taken to an on-site laboratory to be analyzed. Biologists track how well the microbes are doing at eliminating solids from the water, and what kinds of microbes are surviving to the end of the process. They keep cultures of the different kinds of microbes that they want to be doing the different jobs, and they constantly adjust the specific mix of microbes being used. From the resulting sludge, they make adjustments, coat the plastic tokens, and begin the process again. Podcast footnote. What this all means is that the specific mix of microbes used in any given sewage treatment plant is entirely unique and proprietary to each plant. Which is, to be honest, right and proper, since the specific needs of a plant in Rhode Island are going to be completely different from those of a plant in Texas, due to differences in climate, the amount of rainwater runoff in the system, pollution, dietary and industrial differences, etc. The downside of this is that if and when something really bad happens to a wastewater treatment plant, it can be months before a plant can get back up to capacity. This is not an academic concern. Because plants are always located, as I've said, at the lowest-lying point in an area, which means that they are very prone to flooding. And if the flooding gets to the aeration tanks, it can really mess the system up. If the flooding also wipes out the lab, the results can be truly catastrophic. As a result, disaster preparedness and flood preparation is an increasingly important part of wastewater treatment plant operations. End podcast footnote. Level 3 treatment is thus a fairly calm process in comparison to what went before in Level 2 in the aeration tanks. The final stage, Level 4, ends up being positively bucolic. It's basically a big lazy river. At the beginning, the staff add chlorine and some other chemicals to kill off any remaining microbes in the water. These chemicals then settle out over the course of the waterway, and by the end, the water is, like I said before, technically potable water. But again, please do not drink this water. From here, the water is vented out into a waterway. The process I just described is fairly uniform across the United States and indeed the developed world. There are variations around the edges, but they are minor. What we are about to talk about is sort of the frontiers of wastewater treatment, the areas where experimentation is ongoing. Now, the first loose threat that we need to talk about is the solid waste. What happens to the heavy materials and the fats that settle out in the first stage of clarification? This is an issue that every system answers differently, though the most common answer is that they heat it until all the microbes in it are dead, and then they send it to a landfill. But this is a very energy-intensive process, and it leaves a lot of potentially useful materials on the table. As you will recall from the episode on urban living conditions, this night soil used to be used as a valuable fertilizer, and many experts in the field have asked if there isn't something useful that could be done with this material. In addition, the process of breaking down the nutrients in the solid waste results in the release of methane, which is a potentially useful fuel but also a very dangerous greenhouse gas. The more sophisticated treatment facilities in the country have begun implementing a series of processes to address some of these issues. In many places, the solid waste is placed in geodesic greenhouses, where the heat from the sun speeds up the decomposition of the material while also collecting the methane. The methane is then burned in an incinerator that completes the process of rendering the solid waste into biologically neutral material, essentially a very rich ash. Ideally, the incinerator would also power a generator to create electricity to help run the plant. The ash can then be used as a fertilizer in some applications, though not in food, or as a lining for sanitary landfills. This is the ideal, but there are a whole raft of problems. First, the capital costs are quite high, and it isn't always clear that the returns are worth it, in the absence of any kind of large legal mandate. Second, there are some pollution issues that can't be fixed with heat and microbes. Heavy metals like lead and mercury are actually an increasingly large problem as a result of our suburban lifestyles. Heavy metals like lead and mercury make their way into wastewater systems in a variety of ways, but once they do, there is very little that can be done to remove them from the solid waste. To be clear, they are generally removed from the waste water that is sent out of the plant. Like I said, that water is very, very clean. But the solid waste may contain these heavy metals that simply will not break down because they are dangerous at an atomic level. One atom of lead is as dangerous as a solid block of lead. I mean, the concentration is different. You get what I mean. Some newer systems do not have problems with these contaminants because of where they're located, but most places do. Research is ongoing in the use of things like mushrooms and other plants that may be able to pull heavy metals out of solid waste, but until there are breakthroughs in this area, it's likely that the majority of the solid waste from wastewater treatment plants will end up in landfills, because there's just no way to get rid of the heavy metals. If we all stopped using heavy metals, that would be great. Alas. The one last loose end, which I have referenced a few times, is electricity. Running these plants uses an absolutely gobsmacking amount of electricity. In small cities, the plant can use as much power as an entire neighborhood in that city. And so many plants are enthusiastically pursuing ways to offset their power bills. In many cases, sewage treatment plants are the first customers in any area to invest in green energy like wind and solar power, with wind power being especially valuable due to the usual location of power plants along water bodies. Incinerators are also potentially valuable, but EPA regulations about air pollution do make the use of these facilities somewhat tricky. The treatment plants I'm familiar with have generally made investments in green energy first before circling back to investigate the use of incinerators. But it should be said that your mileage may vary. Every treatment plant is doing something in this area in a different way, though most of the ones that I'm familiar with are engaged in some form of experimentation to try and make their operations more efficient. In the last 200 years, the industrial world has gone from seeing thousands die in horrific cholera outbreaks and things like that, to having wastewater outflows that are theoretically safe for all forms of life. Again, please do not drink this. There is certainly a lot of work still to do. Every few years there are alarming reports of things like medications and microplastics that are invading our treatment systems and making their way into the environment. These issues are being actively studied though I do encourage people to allow the scientific process time to understand the problem before beginning to advocate half-baked policies. Rather than throwing money at new and exotic filtration systems, putting money into replacing 200-year-old pipes and eliminating the last of the combined sewer systems is probably a better use of our extremely scarce resources. That said, the biggest work left Undone is outside the developed world entirely. Across the planet, people live in societies where sewage systems that meet Western standards are either unavailable or a luxury restricted to the rich. As a result, hundreds of thousands die of illnesses that are entirely preventable, and untold ecological damage is done by red tides and heavy metal pollution. These contaminants even make their way into the food system, as rural farmers use contaminated water to irrigate their crops, and as marine life consumes the waste vented into water bodies by massive human settlements. Unfortunately, these issues have often been ignored by the international community because, well, poop is gross. Thankfully, the United Nations and a variety of NGOs have started giving these issues the attention they deserve. I encourage all of you to write to your elected representatives and encourage them to help fund these initiatives, because we all only have one planet after all. And if you happen to have any funds left over after donating to my show, maybe consider donating yourself to some of these NGOs. I will try and remember to post links in the show notes. Today we talked about modern wastewater treatment systems. Septic systems are the modern descendants of cesspits, but make use of better design, microbial additives, and land use regulations to prevent the outbreaks of illness. Modern plumbing systems are usually gravity-based, and for many years they combined rainwater runoff with human waste in so-called combined flow sewage systems. These are being eliminated today because they can be maintenance nightmares, and because they somewhat regularly vent raw sewage into our waterways, which is bad. Modern wastewater treatment plants usually use a four-step treatment process. The water is clarified in a settling tank before being turned into a massive microbial buffet in an aeration tank. Water from the aeration tank goes into another settling tank before being treated with chlorine and other similar chemicals, which are then allowed to settle out before the water is returned to the environment. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to reach out to your local sewage authority. They love hearing positive feedback from the public because usually they are ignored until something goes wrong. Often they have tours for people who express interest, especially for students or student groups. I have been able to talk my way into private tours on several occasions. Crazy as this may sound, the tours are a lot of fun and are way less gross than you might expect. So yeah, give them a call, send them an email, and they'll be happy to hear from you. That's all for today. Next time out, I'm not sure what we're doing yet. So watch your feeds for another exciting episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation.